You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Once upon a time, a a member of the U.S. House of Representatives shot a U.S. attorney uh, in broad daylight in public across the street from the White House. Uh, How did this happen? Uh, What brought this about? And why does it matter for the present? Uh, These are all questions that are tackled in Krista Rose's new book, Star Spangled Scandal. Uh, Krista Rose is a national best-selling author of this book and many others. We will link to those in the show notes. Uh, He served as a senior litigation counsel for the Arizona Attorney General and currently works as a writer in Phoenix, where he lives with his wife. Uh, Mr. DeRose, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, so uh, I, I guess we should start. I'm, I'm assuming most of our listeners don't know this story. So, what, why don't we start with just sort of a, uh, a big picture view of what on earth uh, happened, uh, and then we'll get into some specifics. You did a great job of teeing it up. As unlikely as it sounds, Congressman murders the chief federal prosecutor for Washington D.C. broad daylight, right in front of the White House, for having an affair with his wife. And of course, the victim is the son of Francis Scott Key, author of our national anthem, and so he's uh, American royalty. And so you really have uh, the stage set for um, you know the scandal that's going to uh, obsess the country for the next uh, four or five months. Yeah. So uh, uh, tell us a little bit about. Uh, I guess let's uh, let's start with uh, Key, uh, with uh, with Attorney Key. Um, uh, to, to quote the, uh, the the musical Chicago, uh, did he in fact have it coming? Well, that's uh, it's, it's it's a great way to phrase it, and the whole country would have uh, you know everyone had an opinion about it. Some people thought he did have it coming, uh, that he'd had an affair with this man's wife, that he'd humiliated this person, and that Dan Sickles was his friend, and uh, oh gosh, this could have been this could have been just and there were people who certainly thought that he had it coming. And there are people who realize you can't just go around killing people uh, because of real or perceived offenses. Uh, that, you know, we have to have uh, the, the rule of law, as angry as we, we might be. Um, this, you know, having a civilization depends on it. And so the country was very bitterly divided, often across the dinner table, uh, based on whether or not this was a justified homicide. And you know, public opinion ran the gamut, and then you had people in between who just kind of felt sorry for everyone involved. Yeah, and uh, you, you mentioned the name of the uh, the, the shooter, uh, the uh, the member of the house, uh, Dan Sickles. So if uh, uh, if you bef- before uh, this this book popped up, I don't even remember where I where I saw it. I, I think I. Uh, uh, man, I, I don't remember where I, where I encountered this, but if you'd asked me what I knew about Daniel Sickles prior to reading this book, uh, it would have been he was the guy at Gettysburg in the Peach Orchard, uh, and that would have been kind of everything I knew about him. Uh, that would not have been the case uh, in 1860. Uh, so uh, who, who is Daniel Sickles, and, and what brought him to the position of you know shooting a U.S. attorney? Yeah, so he was an ambitious young New Yorker. He'd been a member of the New York Assembly and New York Senate. He'd been an aide to James Buchanan while Buchanan was serving as uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom. He'd come back to New York, run successfully for Congress. And he and his wife, Teresa, who was considered the most beautiful woman in Washington, the, the, the really at the top of the social ladder, um, they're throwing these elegant and extravagant parties, and he's tapped for bigger things, you know, perhaps the U.S. Senate, perhaps something even bigger. And um, 
Obviously, it all comes to a screeching halt when he gets an anonymous letter telling him that his wife is having an affair with the U.S. attorney. I uh, know this. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't want to get too sidetracked by this, but just just to uh, briefly mention this. This isn't the first public scandal involving a woman that Daniel Sickles was in, was uh, associated with, right? Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about the one while he was in the state legislature? Yeah. So Daniel Sickles, when he was a single man, uh, had had uh, had a I think had fallen in love. I think that's fair to say with a woman named Fanny White. Fanny White is. Uh, among the most interesting characters in this book, and this book is filled with characters that are too good to make up, and, and Fanny White is one of them. Uh, so she had been seduced by a man uh, when she was younger, which, of course, uh, at that time would ruin your prospects for a successful marriage and you know being in society. And so she became a prostitute, but she was a very smart woman, very industrious, and within a few years she's running her own brothel. Uh, and Daniel Sickles, as a single man, was a, a patron uh, of, of her brothel, and they ended up actually uh, having a romance themselves. And, um, you know, Dan Sickles, very much to his credit, I think, uh, didn't, didn't care. He certainly didn't care for hypocrisy. And, he, you know, if you were his friend or someone who was important to him, um, he was going to maintain that friendship or that relationship, regardless of whether people approved of it. And so uh, he actually took Fanny up uh, to hang out in Albany when he was a member of the New York State Assembly. Right, which uh, in the 19th century, you, uh, you, you don't show up with a prostitute at the state capitol, right? That's right. The, le- the legislators uh, at the time knew to, to leave that stuff inside the House of the repute. Right. So uh, uh, he, he uh, does not marry uh, Fanny. Uh, he does not. Uh doesn't marry her, uh, instead marries uh, his childhood sweetheart, uh, this Teresa, uh, goes to D.C., uh, and then uh, not, doesn't doesn't abandon her, right? Uh, it's it's not that he uh, uh, just leaves her completely alone, but is very busy, uh, and she has an affair with uh, uh, Attorney Key. Uh, he receives this uh, letter just with initials that, do we, do we know who the, uh, who sends the letter to him? No, and honestly, that is the part that vexed me the most researching this book. I was determined to try to figure out who this person was. So he receives this letter, tells them that he and his wife are having an affair. They're meeting at a house. Here's where the house is. People who are familiar with D.C. will know this is where the old Washington Post building was, north, north neighborhood north of the White House. Um, and it's a very specific letter, and so he really just can't ignore it. He's got a run this rumor to ground and see if there's any truth to it. And it's signed RPG, and I have no idea what those uh, letters uh, indicate or if they indicate anything. I worked with a handwriting expert to try and um, see if I could identify the author. Uh, I still have a feeling, I have a, feel, I have a suspect in mind, but his, his handwriting positively does not match the letter. And so I think this person may be responsible, but may have used a scribe to to conceal his identity. Yeah, I, I will say that was uh, that was one of the disappointing parts of the book uh, because I made the mistake of reading some promotional materials, and uh, one of the things and I don't think this is anything the publisher put out, uh, but one of the blurbs I saw somewhere uh, said, "Oh, oh, in this book you find out who the author of this letter is," and then I read the book and we don't find out who. So you know, I'm uh, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I really want to know. But I'll tell you this, um, you know, so Shakespeare, 
used to do something called intentional opacity. He would take source material that was actually quite clear, and then when he rewrote the story for the stage, he would make it uh, more ambiguous. So in Othello, you know, you have all of the tragedy and that horrible play is uh, introduced by Iago. And in the source material, Iago has a very specific motive. He's trying to get Othello out of the way so that he can take his position in the military. In the play, you don't know why Iago's doing all of these things. He's putting people against each other. People are getting killed. People are getting fired from their jobs. Um, people are going to prison. And at the end of the book, he just says, you know, don't ask me any more questions, which you know you know. And he almost becomes a, a more terrifying villain in that way. And so I think the upside to not knowing who RPG is is that they are a much more terrifying villain. You know, they, and, and, you know, Key receives a letter the very same day warning him that Sickles was aware of the affair and to be prepared. Sickles is aware of the affair because RPG wrote the letter to him. And then during the trial members of the jury get a third letter from RPG uh, advising them to convict Sickles. And so this seems like someone who's, who's really interested in destroying everybody involved in this case. Yeah, and, and again, there's there's uh, at least uh, I mean you've 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 done the research on this and uh, come up with there's no way to know. Uh, so sorry, listener, spoiler alert. <laughs> but it wasn't it was, you know I do have a suspect in mind for those who are really really curious. I will identify him you know in the book. Sure, sure. Um, and yeah, I won't I won't spoil that part of it. Uh, so uh, uh, Sickles uh, shoots Key, uh, having uh, having discovered that in fact this affair is going on. Uh, and then you uh, I, I, this I thought this part of the book was so fascinating. You point out that what to do next of course he he hadn't really thought through uh but what what does a congressman do once he has shot someone in public like what what is the next step where where do you even go to turn yourself in uh can you uh, yeah. you talk us through that a little bit yeah he goes and turns himself in at the home of the attorney general right it's uh, only you know no one right. no one could ever accuse daniel sickles of going small and um, so when he kills the U.S. attorney in front of the White House, he goes and turns himself in at the home of the attorney general in Franklin Square. Right, which, of course, he would have known him personally from, from working with Buchanan and working with the administration, uh, both as a congressman and from his, uh, his past with Buchanan. Exactly right. In fact, the attorney general thought he was just uh, getting a visit, and uh, Sickles is in his parlor and chatting with some of his other guests uh, when the police show up. Right. Yeah, and that's a uh, uh, that is unusual. I, I think uh, I'm I'm always struck when I when I read about politics in the uh, this part of the 19th century how uh, how common it is just to show up at a government official's house uh, just to chat or have a conversation or whatever. So it's it's not unusual that he would go. I mean, even even the White House is subject to this. Uh, people will show up and ask for jobs and and hang out. Uh, so the fact that there are people there, uh, even big name people, isn't surprising. And then the police show up as well. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating how accessible the most famous people in the country were in this era. So we're two years before the Lincoln administration at this point, and throughout Lincoln's time in the White House, he would wake up and there would be people lined up in the hallway uh, to meet with him. And he would spend hours just receiving people. And uh, some of them, you know, had issues that they had to deal with with the federal government. They had people, uh, family members, loved ones who were in the service that they wanted 
news about or wanted a favor from and um you know on and on it went but these people who are now very much off limits to the public uh were very easy uh to to i mean it's really remarkable in a sense that lincoln's the first president to be assassinated uh because um you know the president was was just you know you could find him walking down the street or you could go right into his house right up to where he's working in his office right unannounced Right. I mean, although if you if you pass him in the street, I suppose it would have been less likely that people would have known what he looked like, uh, just because pictures weren't available through through newspapers yet. Yeah, um, you, there's certainly an increasing awareness of, of how the president looked as uh, you know photographs were introduced to newspapers, and of course we're a long way from that. But right. one one trend that really accelerates uh, because of the Sickles trial and because of the shooting is the popularity of illustrated newspapers. So this is the first case that the country is going to obsess over at the same time. You, know, you have the Telegraph bringing the story uh, all over America, more or less in real time, verbatim transcripts appearing in the newspaper every day. And people really wanted to see who these people were and what was happening. And so Frank Leslie's illustrated uh, newspaper and Harper's really had uh, their first first um, really big story with the Sickles case, and it propelled their subscriptions to, to new heights. Yeah, and let's uh, let's let's uh, uh, spin uh, turn and talk about the trial and uh, uh, what we've been talking about so far. Right, it's the first kind of between a third and half of the book that we've we've just kind of uh, sprinted over to get to what I, I think is the. Uh, uh, the fascinating part, not that it's it's not fascinating to have a representative shoot a U.S. attorney, uh, but the uh, the trial in in some ways is is even bigger than the event itself. Uh, so uh, uh, let's let's start with where where you've already gone. Let's let's talk about the uh, the media and the trial. Uh, what's different? Uh, why is this trial such a big deal compared to say previous events? I mean, it's certainly not the first murder in the United States. It's not even the first time a a federal government official has killed another you know public figure, right? Burr and Hamilton uh, prior to this. Uh, what makes this different? A couple things. Uh, number one, I think you have this salacious affair that's at the center of it. You have a famous victim, um, not just the son of Francis Scott Key, but also someone who was part of the Washington firmament, the chief federal prosecutor of the district, and not just any congressman, a congressman from New York who is a close ally of the president of the United States. So you have all of the raw materials there for what we would today recognize as the next big scandal. Um, Communication played a major role. So we'll talk about the rise of the telegraph. Uh, telegraphs. You know, when the telegraph is introduced, people kind of greet it with a shrug. They can't think of any kind of news that would be so important that they would need to know, you know, in real time, which is amazing because we sit on our phones all day and we're constantly getting updates on the, the next breaking news story. But even the most important stories in the country, people were, were happy to wait two, three, four days to 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 get the story. Um, that really changes with this. So you've got the commun- the new communication infrastructure and also the, the media changed. So in the beginning of the United States, you have partisan newspapers that are, you know, created to advance or polemicize uh, political party or 
politicians. You have the, the commercial newspapers, which will tell you the price of commodities and which ships came and went out of this port. But you didn't have anyone covering what we would today broadly consider as news. And so that's going to change with the rise of the penny press in the 1830s, New York Sun. Now they're covering crime. They're covering uh, tragedy. They're covering human interest stories. They've got the first generation of investigative reporters. And new technology, uh, in terms of the printing press, allowed them to print larger newspapers faster and more cheaply. And so they could make their money off subscriptions and Therefore, their circulation was the most important factor, and so they're trying to sell as many newspapers as possible. So everything about the media changed, the communication infrastructure changed, and it's all right there just waiting for the right story, and this turned out to be the one. Now, I'm a, uh, I, I know this, this happens eventually. I, I don't know if it happens yet. Are, are papers putting out two editions a day at this point, or is that down the road a ways? Uh, no, papers certainly could put out multiple editions uh, throughout the day, especially in response to, to some new development. They want to be first. Um, you know, like the first edition of the New York Times, for instance, uh, disappeared almost immediately uh, when it hit the streets of New York. Um, and so you want to keep trying to feed that demand uh, for more information, more stories, uh, more news about the Sickles case. Uh, and is this... Uh... Uh, is is this the first time? Uh, I guess this is a legal history question. Is this the first time we see uh, one side in a uh, in a case intentionally using the media to feed information to the jury that they're not allowed to in the courtroom? Absolutely, has to be because prior to this, you could look at the most sensational murder cases in history leading up to this point, and they might get a paragraph of attention in the newspaper. So this whole idea that we're going to have verbatim transcripts, trial testimony, detailed explanations of what happened, this is the first time we saw any of these things that are now commonplace. And so absolutely it's the first time that uh, they'll use the media to try to influence the jury. It's certainly the first time it was even possible. Uh, well, any, anything else on the media? I mean, they're, they're, they're with us all along, right? We're, we're never really without media in this trial. But any, anything else specifically you want to say before we go to the trial? Um, you know, I, I just think it's interesting that this is sort of what creates our scandal-obsessed culture that we're still familiar with today. You know, when the media has to move on from this case, they've got all these empty uh, column, column inches, and they've got a readership that's still hungry for stories like this. And so they go on and, and move on in search of the next story. And I really think this is also the first instance of the line being blurred between what's news and what's just entertainment. And it's and it's it's both sides too, right? It's it's uh, it's the the newspapers that are clearly just using this trial to sell to sell uh, papers, whatever side they take, whether they think he's guilty or not. But then it's also the newspapers who are condemning the newspapers that are using this as entertainment. Uh, exactly. uh, they both end up being entertaining. The newspapers are fighting with each other, and sometimes in a very humorous way. Uh, you'll find the newspapers insulting each other, calling each other names, condemning each other's coverage. It's really quite a spectacle. 
Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's go through the trial, and, and uh, I want to start just briefly with the uh, the, the grand jury. Uh, that's uh, a phrase that. Uh, 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 an institution that I think most Americans don't know a whole lot about. Um, maybe there's been a bump in knowledge just uh, as a result of uh, the, the Ferguson matter uh, in Missouri, here in Missouri, uh, a few years back. Uh, but can you tell us just briefly what the what the grand jury is in general, and then what uh, what their involvement uh, with the, the Sickles trial was? Yeah, so the grand jury is uh, it's, it's like a regular jury that you see in the courtroom. Uh, it's more numerous and they, uh, it's a preliminary stage of a prosecution. So before you can put someone on trial for a crime, there has to be a finding of probable cause, that the government just can't put people on trial uh, without probable cause. And so it's the grand jury that makes that determination. So they hear witnesses, they examine evidence, usually in secret, as they did in this case, and they make a determination as to whether there's even enough evidence to go to trial. Um, and so, of course, they, they do in this case. We don't have the same sort of conflict of interest laws we do today. In fact, uh, some accused family members ended up on the grand jury. Uh, but regardless, uh, there's obviously no shortage of evidence that Daniel Sickles is responsible for his killing. Um, the real hang-up is that he killed the U.S. attorney. So he killed the guy who otherwise would be responsible for prosecuting him. And so there's a delay as President Buchanan has to select a new U.S. attorney to handle the trial. Uh, yeah, and I, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the guy that they settle uh, settle on, uh, but uh, Robert Ould. There we go, Robert Ould. Uh, perfectly competent prosecutor, right? Uh, uh, far more so Excellent in some ways lawyer. than Key. Uh, far, far better lawyer than Key. In fact, he had been Key's more or less Key's deputy while Key was U.S. attorney, and so a lot of the heavy lifting in the U.S. attorney's office was done by by Ould during that time. And so actually there had been a lot of suspicion because Buchanan was Sickles' friend that he would appoint someone who wasn't a very good lawyer or perhaps appoint someone who was a good lawyer but who was sympathetic towards Sickles. Um, but he sort of pleases everyone by picking this highly competent, very talented lawyer who is essentially the number two person? You know, it's it's a it really is a merit pick, right? Uh, and, and tell us a little bit about the judge, uh, Judge Crawford, uh, who uh, who who presides over the trial. Yeah, straight from Central Casting. If you just picture <laughs> an, an old judge with uh, with white hair, and uh, he's appointed by James K. Polk, um, and so he had presided over almost every criminal trial in Washington D.C. going back decades. Right, and he is uh, he is definitely a, a character, right? I, and and I, I, I kept I kept trying to figure out which side he was on, and I, I think uh, crankiness is sort of the only side, really. At the end of the day, crankiness is clearly the side. Um, that's for sure. I think you could see in the trial he really does try to be even-handed. Um, if there are any personal sympathies, I have to assume that they they lie with with Key because Key was the U.S. attorney in his courtroom every single day, and so day in and day out. You know, Key was the one appearing before him. You've got a very intimate uh, bar association of the District of Columbia. You know, not many lawyers, and it's one criminal judge. Uh, and so they all knew each other very well. But you can see throughout the trial, he tries to be very even-handed. But he is super cranky, and the trial ends early every day because there's only so much he can take. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's interesting that uh, they keep uh, they keep calling the trial uh, in in the kind of early afternoon because it's getting uh, I forget if it's warm or cold. The weather right is is getting to them. Uh, of course, we're we're before uh, central heating or central air conditioning. Um, right. And it's it's almost always him who calls it, right? It it's, it seems not to be the uh, the prosecution or the defense asking. Uh, it's almost always him who says, "All right, I'm 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 done for the day." Absolutely, it's always it's always him. It's his, his decision, and he tends to to pack it in about two o'clock, which is one of the reasons we have a twenty day trial. Right. Uh, well, so we've we've got our prosecution, we've we've got our judge, uh, and then on the defense, uh, if uh, you know, during the O.J. Simpson trial, this was the dream team. Uh, Sickles gets his own dream team. So can you can you tell us about them? He gets his own dream team. It's the very very first legal dream team. It's interesting. Once news spreads that Sickles has been arrested, his friends and family members start hiring people, uh, and so the first and probably most conspicuous hire is Edwin Stanton who, of course, is a couple years away from his eternal fame as Secretary of War uh, to, to Abraham Lincoln during our Civil War. At this point, he's living in D.C., and he's a very highly respected uh, attorney. Um, they hire a couple local lawyers, people who are very familiar with D.C. and uh, you know Virginia courts. And then from New York, you have two of Sickles' uh, very close friends, including uh, James Brady, who probably would have been the most famous lawyer in the United States uh, at the time, really like the Johnny Cochran sort of of his era. You know, he was right. from the Irish community, he'd grown up sort of defending uh, marginalized communities from uh, the Irish to, uh, you know, going after um, um, Sunday Sabbath closing laws, uh, you know, in defense of Jewish merchants who had to then be closed on Saturday as well as Sunday. And so he's sort of a champion of the accused, champion of uh, marginalized communities, and a really uh, famous, well-known lawyer who's going to come to New York and uh, head up uh, this this amazing A-list defense team. And it's really remarkable how well they all work together. The Eagles really didn't seem to get in the way. And uh, they really cooperated and functioned together very well. For It's basically an airplane that's built while it's flying. No, I, 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 you know, I want people to go out and, and buy the book, so I, we don't want to give away too much of the the trial itself, which is the uh, the bulk of it. But can you can you give us again just that flyover view of what goes on in the trial? It's this remarkable, remarkable trial where you have these arguments being advanced for the first time that a man who kills the seducer, quote unquote, seducer of his wife, commits no crime, and they said, but if that's not good enough for you maybe Sickles did it in self-defense, and you can let him go for that reason. But if none of these arguments are satisfactory, then Sickles, who put on a trench coat in an unseasonably warm February afternoon, took three guns with him and shot down the U.S. attorney, who was completely unsuspecting, uh, then maybe he was temporarily insane. Yeah, so so tell us a little bit about uh, insanity as a as a uh, traditionally legitimate uh, defense, and uh, what on earth is temporary insanity? Yeah, so you know you have this sort of original thought of insanity that okay, if the person is basically no better than a wild beast, right, then they're not guilty by reason of insanity. That's sort of been like an old tradition, and then you get a sort of more sophisticated. Um, 
ruling coming out of the United Kingdom. You have the Monoton case. You know, well, of you know, with, with, with just a more sophisticated and more modern view of mental illness, right? That you don't have to be acting like a wild beast in order to 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 not be responsible by reason of mental illness. So it's you know not appreciating that what you did was wrong, not understanding the wrongfulness of your action, or um, to not know what you were doing. Um, by reason of mental defect. Well, obviously that, that, that defense isn't going to fly with Sickles because there were people talking to him shortly before the murder. There are people talking with him right after the murder. Like I said, he's having a perfectly normal conversation in the parlor of the attorney general in front of lots of witnesses. He talks uh, with key during the murder. He, he, he says a lot of, yep, this is a villain. You've defiled my back, prepare to die. Um, yeah, so, so, but, so he's appearing calm and lucid before and after the shooting. And so you can't argue straight insanity, uh, but you, you could, and they did argue that he was temporarily insane. He's insane for a time. So it's a variation of this new, uh, insanity defense. And, uh, had, had that, uh, what, was there any precedent for that? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, why does that matter for the law? Yeah, uh, there really wasn't any precedent for it. Certainly people had, had used insanity as a defense uh, successfully, but this idea that someone could be insane for a very discrete period of time and therefore not guilty, that's really uh, a novelty uh, that appears uh, more or less for the first time during this trial. Um, and it becomes a cornerstone of what I think we're going to talk about next, which is the unwritten law. Yep, that's that's right where we're going. What what is the unwritten law, and uh, 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 how can there even be such a thing as an unwritten law? Interestingly, for about a hundred years in the United States, the most closely adhered to law could not be found in any rule book or in the decision of any court or any judge. Uh, it was the notion that a person is not criminally responsible when they commit a murder to avenge their family honor. So certainly Sickles would be the prototypical case where you have a man killing another man who has, quote-unquote, seduced his wife. Because throughout this, um, you know, the woman is completely denied her agency in this, right? Like, it's, it's always the man who seduces the woman. It's never that the woman had independent right. thoughts or impulses and decided to engage in the affair on their own accord. Um, so they always refer to the Lothario as the seducer of the which, wife. Which provides some protection for the woman, too, right? You know what's interesting? It, it, logically, it would. But as you can see in this case, Teresa's completely denied an emergency for participating in the affair, and yet she pays the consequences. She's the one who's cast out of social society. She's the one whose friends turn her back on her. She's the one uh, who, whose only hope to ever have a husband is for her own husband to take her back. She wouldn't. There wouldn't be a possibility of her being able to be remarried. Um, oh, oh so, sure. I'm sorry. I'm, know, I'm in a legal sense, though. What's that? I'm in, in a legal sense. Uh, there, there's some protection there. Yeah, and I mean, part of this come, proceeds from the fact that adultery is a really serious thing and has serious consequences, and the law uh, doesn't really have an adequate way to address it. Um, it's one of the points that is made at trial that there was, you know, no way to punish Key criminally 
uh, for what he did. Um, and so that there has to be, you know, that this really what that means is that the government is leaving it to people to handle things on their own. Um, and so, you know, you have instances of the unwritten law being used in the years leading up to the Sickles case, and it could take many forms. Sometimes the defense would plead insanity. Sometimes they would come up with a spurious self-defense charge. Um, but you had a couple instances leading up to the Sickles trial where people are going and killing their wife's lovers and getting away with it. Either the grand jury doesn't charge them or the jury acquits them. Maybe the judge throws the case out. In some cases, if it got to the point where there was a conviction, the governor was expected to use his pardon power uh, to release the killer. And this would go on consistently for about 100 years. We're talking about the last unwritten law case, like in 1958. But we're not talking about ancient history here. Uh, but it's almost virtually unknown today. I certainly didn't know anything about it until I started researching this case. And it's the Sickles trial and the hysteria over the Sickles case that's going to force uh, the unwritten law and um, this thinking, feeling about the unwritten law into every living room in America. Uh, and and uh, what I, I, I don't remember if you go into this in the book. What what happens to the unwritten law? Does just the culture change, or do we do we get written laws that override it, or or what's the uh, the end of the, the that particular story? Oh yeah, laws that overrode it wouldn't have been sufficient. I mean, you have numerous instances where judges would tell the jury that you know adultery, this guy having an affair, this is not a defense to murder. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, juries would ignore the judges. And it, it's actually amazing to watch. You know, the Bar Association says maybe we should just codify this because it's undermining respect for the rule of law generally to have juries continuously and almost uniformly reject uh, any kind of punishment uh, for a killing in these circumstances. And by the way, it worked both ways. In fact, women who killed men uh, over issues of honor, actually had a higher acquittal rate uh, than men who um, killed their wife's lover uh, in, in an affair of honor. Um, and so it worked both ways, and sometimes it could be a father avenging the honor of his daughter or a brother offend, uh, defending the honor of his sister. Um, and so I, I think you, you keyed in on it. Uh, you know, the, the culture changed. Um, I think the unwritten law really is a byproduct of, um, you know, a culture that saw women and saw female purity as commodities. Um, that's something that a man could possess, you know, and thinking about a woman's, um, you know, sexual virtue in a different way than perhaps uh, we, we, we commonly do today. Um, you know, where a woman could, was a ruined woman if she'd ever slept with another man been intimate with another man. Um, so, so I think, I think women entering the workforce in World War II, uh, sort of first wave feminism, um, just more modern understandings of the female and their role in society and their ability to make their own decisions and be in charge of their own personal lives, all of those things contributed uh, to, to get rid of the unwritten law. But I'll give you just uh, two examples to show you how, um, how, powerful the unwritten law was. So in one case in Kentucky, a man is killed in the classic unwritten law scenario. He's caught in bed with another man's wife. And um, 
you know, he's killed. The governor preemptively announces that he'll pardon the killer if the if the judicial system ends up convicting him, which is extraordinary on its own. Uh, but what makes it more remarkable is that the victim in that case was his own son. And so despite this, you know, the guy, it's his son, but the public expects him as an elected official to enforce the unwritten law. And then in South Carolina in the 1890s, post-Reconstruction, Jim Crow, South Carolina, the birthplace of the Confederacy, a black man kills a white man that he finds in bed with his wife. But the governor still pardons him. The unwritten law was more powerful than segregation, more powerful than Jim Crow. And you have uh, this black defendant uh, pardoned uh, by a white governor of post-Reconstruction South Carolina. That's how powerful the unwritten law was. That's how um, uniform we were as a people in agreement that the unwritten law uh, should, should always be enforced. I'll give you one more interesting example. Um, you, you, you could only kill the person outside your family who had, had dishonored you or dishonored your spouse, sister, female relation. So I'm wondering if this guy and his wife, and I really would love to know more about the honeymoon that preceded this incident, um, but he and his wife are on their honeymoon, and there's a lot of drinking involved, and he wakes up and he finds her in bed with a Catholic priest, and he kills them both, but he's only charged with one count of murder. And he's only charged with murdering his wife. You couldn't kill your wife under the unwritten law. It had to be the person from outside your family who you thought had dishonored you. So there, there are some boundaries on this, this unwritten, there, some unwritten oh yeah. boundaries. It's remarkable. The contours are remarkably clear for a law that never got written down. Right. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I think the whole book is 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 great. It's a lot of fun to read. But the uh, the chapter, the sort of last chapter, going through the the future of the unwritten law, uh, by itself is worth the, the the cost of the book. It's it's just really interesting to to see how that works out over time. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, back back to the uh, the Sickles trial. So uh, the, the the jury verdict comes in, and, and again, spoiler alert: uh, he's he's not guilty, or at least he's he's found not guilty. Um, what do you think about that? Was was justice done in the Daniel Sickles case? Would, would you have oh, voted not guilty if you'd been on the jury? What an interesting question. Uh, you know, where you stand is where you sit. And so from the perspective of a man in 1859 in D.C., sort of feeling the popular sentiment behind me to let this person go, you know, who, who, who's to say what you would do in that position? I mean, obviously, you just can't have a civilization that is based on people taking the law into their own hands. Um, and, and, and I think it's as simple as that. And so I think, uh, I think no, certainly by our modern concept of justice, justice was not done. Um, we have a fact-finding process. I mean, let's say Key had been innocent. Um, you know, we have a fact-finding process. We have trials. We have grand juries. We have um, an adversarial system with lawyers for and against you and a neutral judge to try to establish facts. And so letting people just take the law into their own hands, you know, it's impossible to see how a civilization could exist on that basis. So certainly by, by that understanding of justice, justice was not done. Uh, yeah, I mean, to, I guess to his credit, uh, Sickles did his due diligence, right? Yeah, he, he did find out that he was in fact guilty. Um, he, that he did, but... Um, you know, there's no telling how 
uh, scrupulous the next person will be. Sure. And, you know, um, I know there's at least uh, one instance where someone was nearly killed, and this is in the book. Um, someone was nearly killed, and I'll just tell you the story. There's an entire chapter where I talk about the other cases that are similar to the Sickles case that are being reported at this time, because once the media has completely run out of news on the Sickles case, wringing every last drop out of what's happening in the courtroom, wringing every last drop out of stories about the people involved in the case, like, what do we do to feed this public interest? And they look for other cases like the Sickles case throughout the country. And so there's this guy who's at home, and um, this guy shows up with guns, to, uh, planning to kill him. And he goes, hey, okay, I see that you're here to kill me. Would you mind telling me what I did wrong? And he goes, well, my wife said that you had uh, dishonored her. And he said, well, um, can we go talk to your wife? I'd really like to know what it is I'm getting killed for. And he agrees. It's a really bizarre scenario. <laughs> and... Um, you know, the wife says, well, you know, you, uh, you, you escorted me home, which would have been the gentlemanly thing to do at the time. Um, and you uh, helped me over a puddle, which, again, was the gentlemanly, sort of the quintessentially gentlemanly thing to do, helping a woman over a puddle. Um, and when you helped me over the puddle, you squeezed my hand a little bit too tight. And then everyone involved, I think except for the woman, realizes, oh, my gosh, I almost got killed over this. The other guy says, oh, my gosh, I almost killed someone else over this, you know, you can see when you start taking matters into your own hands, how, how easily they can spiral out of control. And look how close this guy came to getting killed for squeezing a woman's hand too tight. I, I, I honestly don't know how I would have voted at the time either for, for whatever that's worth. Um, I, uh, I, I, uh, when I, when I teach uh, jury trials in, in class, I uh, encourage my students to think in sort of big picture. You know, is is justice done? Well, if if you get a verdict and it seems to have been a fair trial, even if the verdict is the wrong one, it, it's still at least partial justice, right? Uh, it, there, there's still some kind of process that has been gone gone through. Uh, temporary insanity, I think. Are... Make sorry, what's that? Sometimes I think there are very legitimate reasons for jury nullification. You know, sure. for, for reaching a verdict that um, may not be strictly dictated by the law or by evidence. Um, but, um, you know, I'll give you an example, like uh, like battered wife syndrome, you know, where you have sure. a woman who is in a constant state of abuse. Um, you know, she's being threatened if she leaves. She's in danger in the home. She's constantly... Um, enduring uh, assaults and attacks and she doesn't know if the next one's going to kill her or when it's going to come but perhaps he wasn't trying to kill her in that very moment and um she ends up um killing her attacker remember we had a spate of these cases and sort of battered wife syndrome offered as a defense um and maybe strictly speaking according to the law um the, the woman would have been guilty, uh, but certainly to throw someone who's been an innocent victim for all these years, who does nothing but um, remove the attacker from her life, who, who's repeatedly abusing her, possibly uh, would kill her someday. Um, are we really reaching the wrong result? Are we really doing an injustice here by letting her go? You know, to um, use one example. 
sure, sure, no, and, and and yeah, I think that's. I'm a I'm a fan of the jury system uh, for you know not just those reasons, but those are those are certainly near the top of the list, right? That independent Absolutely. judgment of the uh, the the peers is critical, I think. Um, yeah, the representing society. Sure, sure, and I mean it's it's uh it's it's central to the democratic process, which doesn't mean I don't try to get out of jury duty if you know if it comes up, but uh, uh, <laughs> abstractly I think it's very important. Uh, so uh, uh, two two sort of closing questions. Uh, first, uh, do you want to say anything about temporary insanity as a defense? Uh, so this this is the first time it's successfully used. Uh, certainly not the last time. Um, what uh, what what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, I think in this case, what you have is the defense offering an avenue for the jury to take to acquit their client. I don't think anyone was convinced that Daniel Sickles was temporarily insane. I don't think anyone in the courtroom believed it. Um, But it was an avenue that the jury could take if they wanted to let him go because they approved of what he had done. Um, you know, because the, ju- the judges instructed the jury that even if the affair was going on, Sickles had no legal justification for killing him. So the jury has to find something else. And that's just another path that the defense offers them that they can take. And so obviously there are times where temporary insanity is asserted and it's completely legitimate, right? You know, we, we, our modern understanding of mental illness. Uh, tells us that people can lose their ability to reason, to appreciate the wrongfulness of their actions, but that they can also, you know, regain their sanity just as easily. Um, And so, um, you know, courts really struggled with how to handle the science behind these kinds of cases, maybe to some degree still do, although a lot of states have adopted legislation to try to curtail some of the excesses with temporary insanity pleas. Yeah, I, I actually uh, thought, and I mean, obviously, that it would be anachronistic. They wouldn't have been thinking in these terms. But uh, I, I thought of something along the lines of the fighting words doctrine. Right? This is, uh, yeah, you're not insane when someone says something awful to you and you fly off the handle. But uh, it is the sort of situation when any reasonable person or any average person uh, is going to have that kind of reaction. Now, I, I don't know that you know the the sickle circumstance necessarily fits that category, but it is maybe more of a parallel than. Uh, you know, actual clinical insanity, however temporary. Yeah, and so I, I, I do think it's important to, to note that this isn't like a 19th century grant. This isn't a 19th century jury falling for pseudoscience. Like I think the jury knows exactly what it's doing and why. Right. Uh, well, it's our, our practice here on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles uh, to give our guests the last word. Uh, so I will uh, I will turn the mic over to you, and you can say whatever you want to our listeners uh, about the book, uh, about uh, you know temporary insanity, uh, life, the universe, and everything, uh, whatever you want. Oh, terrific. Well, first of all, I really enjoyed this conversation, and thank you for having me on. And thank you to those of you who are still listening. Um, I hope this book is as much fun for you to read as it was for me to write. I'm a history lover. I love books. This is why I became an author. And so I write about things that I'm interested in learning more about. If I, typically, if I can't find a book on a subject I'm really interested in, like I wanted to learn more about the Sickles case, I decided to write one, and that's what I did here. And it ended up being so much more fascinating than I had even expected. Uh, you know, when you have a congressman killing the U.S. attorney for having an affair with his wife in front of the White House, and then that's just the beginning 
uh, the interesting uh, part of the story. Um, you know, you've got a real winner on your hands. And so I hope I did a good job of staying out of the way and letting the story speak for itself. Uh, if you'd like to connect with me, I'm at chrisderosebooks.com. That's C-H-L-I-S-D-E-R-O-S-E books.com. You can contact me through the website, but I hope you'll get a chance to check out Star Spangled Scandal, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you again, uh, Mr. DeRose, for joining us on the show. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in as well. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our uh, press liaison, and Britt Stack is our audio editor. Please be listening again for another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.